thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. So we, we continue our, our study of the book of Genesis with chapter 20. And as usual, we're going to begin by reading the chapter and then um, studying it carefully. Let's first recall what happened so far. We've been following Abram um, and now Abraham as he uh, came down from... Uh, uh, from Ur of the Chaldean, he came down to this land that God promised him. He settled there, and the land was too small for him and his nephew, Lot. So they split, and Lot went and dwelt near Sodom and then in Sodom. Whereas uh, Abraham remained outside of the city. Prior to that, he went to Egypt, pushed by uh, drought, and there nearly lost his wife to Pharaoh. But he did tell her, tell them you are my sister, so that they will not kill me. And she did. They came out of Egypt, settled again, and that's when the separation with Lot happened. And we followed the story all the way through the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and the promise that was made to Abraham by God about an heir. Oh yeah, and in the middle of all of this, let's not forget um, Ishmael. Because uh, Sarah and Abram interpreted the... So they, they couldn't wait or they misunderstood what God had promised them and went ahead and had a child through a servant, Hagar, of um, Sarah who happened to be an Egyptian and they had a boy named Ishmael. And then God came and confirmed His promise to them that through Sarah, they will have an heir. Now, this was the high point of chapter 19. This just happened. And when we read chapter 20, well, actually, let's read it and come back to what I was going to tell you. From, then, from there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and dwelt between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said to, of, of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, wilt thou slay an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, She is my sister? And she herself said, He is my brother? In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. 
We tend to see that also, that things do get a lot better before they get worse on the cross. Things got a lot worse before they got better. You notice? What we see from the reading of, um, of, this, of this chapter, the very first thing we notice, if we compare what happens here to chapter 19, God made that promise to Abraham, you will be the father of the multitudes. And in chapter 19, things got really worse, not better. Because God does not work according to man's plans. We plan things, we expect that A will lead to B, and B will lead to C, and it's always improving all the time. But our lives aren't like that. And they are not like that for a purpose. They are not like that by accident. The fact that your lives and my life are filled with ups and downs are not the result of an accident. Those ups and downs are the love letters that God is sending you and me to teach us how to love Him. It is always worthwhile taking this chapter, sitting home, reading it quietly, and meditating that upon your own life. If you could see your life through the gaze of a loving Father, if you could see everything happen to you, no, the worst thing that happened to you, the worst thing that you can imagine ever happened to you, through the gaze of a loving Father, it will take on a very different perspective. You will understand things very differently than you did if you were to look at them in terms of the human understanding of progress. I was poor, I am rich, I'll be richer, and richer, and richer, and richer, and then richer. And then maybe I'll die. But let's not think about that. That's how we would like to think. We want things stable. We want things under control. We want to know the future. We want to control everything. And not realizing that that's the worst thing that could happen to us, controlling everything. Because he who controls everything does not love, becomes a tyrant. What's the use of saying to somebody, I love you, when you control everything? That's easy. It's when you don't control. Like Jesus on the cross, that your love takes its full meaning. And we see it here with Abraham. Here he is, wandering the land. He went to Gerar. Now what is Gerar? Again, it's a royal city, but it's a royal city that has no, apparently, understanding of who God is. It's a royal city where Abraham could not hope to meet someone who understood what he is talking about. Right? And, by the way, most archaeologists um, point to Tel Haror, or Tel Abu Horairi, which is 15 miles northwest of Beersheba, as its probable location. So there are archaeological digs that support the existence of this city. The other interesting thing about Gerar is the name contained the root Ger, which in Hebrew means foreign, stranger, resident alien. That's what he is. 
He has no rights in the city. However, ironically, this is the region of Beersheba, which will be, which is the future home of Isaac, his son. One important thing to notice, and this is St. Chrysostom, and I'm going to read this quote for, for you. St. John Chrysostom is a father, a doctor of the church, early father and a doctor of the church. And, in, and the word Chrysostom in Greek means mouth of gold, which was attributed to him for all his homilies. And this is a quote that is really worth reading. It's not very long. Notice the life of these good people. He's talking about Abraham and the people living with him, the nomads. How restrained and austere and austere it was. How they shifted place with ease and conducted their life like pilgrims or nomads, pitching their tent at one time in this place, at another in that, as though living in a strange land. They are unlike us, who live in a strange land, as though in our home country, erecting extravagant mansions, porches, and covered walks, possessing land, building baths, and countless other luxuries. See in the present instance too, the kind of trial that befell him, Abraham, at Gerar, and the wonderful caliber of the just man's virtue. What everyone else found unbearable and could not bring themselves to accept, he put up with, without complaint, and without demanding from the Lord, explanation of what happened. As many people do, even though weighed down with countless burdens of sin. When they encounter some difficulties, they become meddlesome and inquisitive, saying, Why has this or that happened? The just man, on the contrary, didn't behave like that. Hence, he enjoyed greater favor from on high. This, after all, is truly the mark of a dutiful servant, not to pry into reasons for what is done by the master, but to accept everything in silence and with deep thanks. His wife was essentially kidnapped. That's what happened. And notice, there is not a word of complaint that comes from him. To some, this can be revolting. Because the text doesn't indicate that. The text seems to be so innocuous. He got there, and Abimelech sent, and sent for her. What does that mean? He didn't ask Abraham, Can I have your sister in marriage? He just took her. What do we call that? Abduction. Right? That, that's all that there is. Not a word of complaint came out from the mouth of Abraham. That's how you know the caliber of the man. Here is a man that has put his entire and complete trust in God. No complaint. Why did this happen to me? Why me? After all these years, I've been serving you. How come you do this to me? Couldn't you do it to them? Nothing. Now compare that to us. Gets hot. What happens? We can't stay our tongue. Forget anything else, just the heat. We cannot stay our tongue. We get into full speed complaint mode. That's how you know the caliber of the man. There is silence which is oppressing, and then there is holy silence. And this is holy silence. Now, Abimelech 
sent and took Sarah. St. Ephraim says this, Unless Sarah received renewed youth in the seed that she had received, Abimelech would not have desired a woman 90 years old. Then Abraham prayed, and God healed Abimelech, his wife, and his female slaves, so that they bore children, because from the time Abimelech had decided to marry Sarah until he returned her, pangs of childbirth struck all the women in his household. They would kneel down, but they could not give birth. That's his understanding of what happened. Obviously, for us, there is something surprising in Abimelech wanting a woman that is 90 years old. Now, one explanation also is that he, knowing the strength of Abraham, did so in order to create an alliance or a treaty with him. He did it for political reasons. Okay? However, the weakness with this explanation is that the rest of the text in this chapter does indicate that he had every instance to lay down with her. Every, every intention to lay down with her. So definitely something strange is going on, but we're not told what it is. We don't know exactly. We can only essentially speculate as to why he took her. But let's leave it at that. It doesn't distract uh, from the rest of the text and really what the important uh, lesson that is, um, that, is, that is here for us. Now, God came to Abimelech in a dream. And he said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. First thing I would like to point out to you, God is not threatening Abimelech. All right? God is not the big bully coming to tell Abimelech, you're a dead man, as in I'm going to kill you. That is not the implied logic here. God is saying, you are a dead man. Do you understand the difference? He is a dead man. As soon as he took her, he became a dead man. Do you understand? The intent here isn't just physical, it is spiritual. Why is that? Okay. First, let's understand in detail what's going on. There is the rule of the king that says, I'm the king, I see a pretty woman, I can take her. As long as she's not somebody else's wife. And that's the rule of the king. And Abimelech was acting according to the rule of the king. Behold, she's my sister. Okay. The rule of the king applies, and he took her. End of story. Then there is the rule of God. Is that rule just? Understand my question. In the eyes of Abimelech, it is a just rule. Right? So, there is what, he, what we might perceive as just. Subjectively, according to my own intention, according to my own understanding of things, this is just. But that is only purely subjective. And then there is something which is objectively true. right? Because it is according to God's will. That is something that is objectively true. There is a big difference between the two. Right? Big difference. So for instance, today, many people think that it is okay to use contraception. 
according to their understanding of things, it is quite alright. So subjectively, they deem it good to use contraception. But according to God's law, it isn't. And there is the fundamental struggle that faces us since Adam and Eve. Because what the serpent told Eve was precisely this. There is no such thing as an objective rule. The rule you make and you live by is as good as the rule that God has given you. You shall be like God, knowing good and evil. Meaning, establishing rules which are good to you. Is that familiar? Hmm. The more things change, the more they are the same. And this is one case, one case where this man, Abimelech, thought that he was just. But in truth, he isn't. Why? Because of the covenant. You see, we go back all the way to Adam and Eve. When God established the covenant with Adam and Eve, it meant that He established the covenant between the two of them as a unity. So the unity between one man and one woman was established from the beginning by God for all people. Therefore, even Abimelech falls under that law. And because of the covenant that was established with Adam and Eve, and hence with all their descendants, he is guilty as charged. This is so important for us to understand today because so many people, and I've been doing this Bible study now for over 10 years, and over the, the period of 10 years, I saw so many people struggle with their Catholic identity. There's a real struggle going on to understand that when God established the church on earth, He intended for the church to be His bride. And he intends to have one family. And so God has one bride. One, not many. And only those who are the children of the church are called unto salvation. Now you've heard me many times talk about what happens for people who are not officially within the visible church. And all of that I will also read. Re recommend you read the documents of Vatican II. They're very, very clear on this. But fundamentally, this is what we're talking about. If you still have ideas that in heaven, you have those sort of compartments. Here you have the Catholics, and here you have the Protestant, right? the 33,000 different denominations. And here you have the Orthodox, and here you have the Buddhists, and the Muslim, and the Jews. That's not heaven. Right? Jesus Christ said, I am the truth. Not, I have the truth, or I know the truth. I am the truth. Therefore, in heaven, the truth is one. It's very important for us to realize this. Because that is what gives the church the missionary zeal. To teach, dispel lies, and bring forth the truth to others, and share it with others. But first, we must be rooted in the truth of Christ. Very important. 
All right. But now, God intervenes and tells him, You're dead man because of the woman you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Throughout Scripture, there's always been an association between adultery and idolatry. Adultery and idolatry. In the eyes of God, adultery is idolatry. Meaning that when a man sleeps with a woman who is not his wife, whether she's the wife of somebody else or not, doesn't matter. Based on what I'm saying to you right now. So, you know, two people are living together. That's called idolatry. It isn't living together. And it isn't we're going to try it before we get married. It is pure and simple idolatry. Meaning the worship of false gods. You see the relationship between the two? Why is that? Precisely because of the covenant. When God established the covenant between Adam and Eve, He said, I am your God, you are my people, these are the terms of the covenant. One man, one woman, together. Therefore, when one man and one woman are not united by God in marriage, they are doing what? Violating the terms of the covenant. Hence, rejecting God as God. Idolatry. You see the relationship between the two? When, when Our Lady appeared in Fatima, she gave the three children a vision of hell, which lasted only a second. And um, Sister Lucia, in her writing, said that um, they saw like a snowstorm falling into this very big pit. And every snowflake was a soul. And Our Lady pointed out there are more people who actually go to hell because of the sin of the flesh than any other sin. We live in a world suffused, imbibed with sexuality. We live in a world that has really lost its moral compass, that doesn't understand right from wrong, that doesn't understand that we are governed by this covenant. And whether we like it or not, the terms are set. And our happiness truly depends on our ability to align our will to God's will. And it's a really hard lesson for us today. Because we're bombarded out there with messages of a different caliber. Messages that affirm us based on our own powers. Messages that says, you can do whatever you want. Everybody's good. Nobody goes to hell. I'm sure you've been to many funerals. Have you been to a funeral where the priest stood up and said, we need to pray for the soul of the departed because he may be in purgatory? Instead of he's gone to a better place? That's calling, that is uh, consoling ourselves at the expense of the departed. Because if, you convert, if you're convinced that this person went to a better place, you're not going to pray for his soul, are you? You know That's what characterizes us. Us. We don't want responsibility anymore. But here the text is telling us what? You, Abimelech, by your own action, by your own action, you're going to do what? In verse 4. Specifically, God tells him in verse 4, I'm sorry, verse 7, 
Now then restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die. Now he's talking about physical death, but not just physical death. Right? You and all that are yours. All that are yours. The newborn baby, the kids playing outside, all that are yours. How could that be? That is the proper of the covenant. Again, God respects our free will. And if you really think about it, we would rather He didn't respect our free will. Because when we realize the extent and the power of our free will and the consequences it brings, we would rather God did without it. It's one thing to say, well, I'm free to do whatever I want. What does that mean, really? That means, whatever I want has absolutely no consequences whatsoever on anybody else. It's just me. We're happy with that. But what if whatever I want means that all those who are going to come from me down to the 30th generation will go to hell? Because by my actions, I've cut them off from God's grace. Now we're not that happy, are we? We would rather that there would be only personal responsibility. That's what we want. Me and God. And everybody else is out of the picture. But it doesn't work this way. If it did work this way, why are we all born with original sin? It was Adam and Eve, right? Have you met Adam and Eve? I haven't met them. They don't speak English. They don't live in San Diego. They have nothing to do with me or you. Why are we born with original sin? Because of what they did. If there was only personal responsibility... Why are we born with original sin? Which means that we're born without faith, hope, and charity. We're born with a deformed soul that has concupiscence, that is unable to control the passion, that is attracted to vice, and that on its own prefers evil over good. That is, those are the fruits of original sin. Why do you think so many of our kids these days are taken by that stupid thing about vampires? Why do you think it's making such a big splash reading all these books? Because intrinsically, because of original sin, there is in us the innate desire to learn about evil. We're attracted to it like flies are attracted to the light that burns them. And it's only through baptism that faith, hope, and charity are infused in our soul and we receive the graces to control concupiscence, to bring passions in order, and to live a truly holy life. It is the action of our Lord Jesus Christ that allows that to happen through the ministry and agency of the Catholic Church. If the Catholic Church was not on earth, if Christ did not come, we'd be all dead by now. We would have all killed each other. Not through one nuclear war, through many nuclear wars. You, f- you often hear people complain about religion. 
oh, religion is bad and it causes people to kill each other, etc. What they don't realize is that really religion acts as a break. If there was no religion, we'd be all dead. Because of original sin and what it impels us to do. So why? Why? Because there is something called communal responsibility. Why? Because we are a family. So the choices are set before you and me. You can either belong to the family of Adam and Eve, in which case you are going to live under that covenant that governed the entire Old Testament. Or you elect to let go of your natural family and become a member of the supernatural family through baptism and the family of Jesus Christ. Those are your choices. There are really two species of people walking on this planet. You need to realize this. Your call and mine is first and foremost to carry that to others. To bring more of them to realize this and join the family of God. Because without it, there's no salvation. And that explains how God acts in this chapter when He tells them, unless you do that, you're all dead. Now notice what Abimelech does. He doesn't stand up and say, what kind of God is this? I refuse. There is no rebellion in him. There is moral disorder. There is moral dissonance. He's not living according to the moral law. You know, most people don't have... I mean, most people do not refuse to live their faith because of theology. I have yet to meet somebody who really is hung up on an issue of theology. Most people have issues with morality. Most people do not want what they consider to be the chains of morality around their lives. They want to live their life as they please. But it is those perceived chains that allow you and me to become saints. We're called to be saints. And only saints will make it to heaven. That's the key. So, speaking in dreams, by the way, speaking in dreams, I've met several people who told me that either the Blessed Virgin Mary or God spoke to them in a dream. To those of you who have had these experiences, my recommendation is to follow the recommendation of St. John of the Cross, who is a doctor of the church, and he is one of the saints who understand the mystical life best. Here is his recommendation, which I'll give to you. First of all, let me say this. As it's indicated here in the commentary, by, um, in the commentary when God resorts to extraordinary things with us, especially us today, like speaking to us in a dream, or some, something of that nature, it isn't because we are, what well, most of the time, it isn't because we're saints. It's because we don't want to listen. You get it? It's because we just don't want to listen. If God, or you think it's God speaking to you in a dream, be aware of a couple of things. Number one, dreams can have one of three origins. Your own subconscious, which is usually the most common origin, the devil, and God. Number two, you and I can't tell. We're not that smart. 
if you have preponderance of wanting to believe in this, if you have, in other words, infatuation with your own degree of holiness, as soon as you have one of those dreams, you'll immediately conclude, God is talking to me. That's exactly what the devil wants. Because that is, he's just, he, was, he successfully planted the seed of pride in your heart. So what does that mean? Does it mean God doesn't talk to anybody in dreams? No. What it means is that you have to exercise utmost prudence. How do you do that? If that happened to you, you don't talk to anybody about it. You don't start proclaiming it. You don't call your friends and your mom and your sister and tell them, God talked to me in a dream. Why? Because the more you repeat it, the more you'll believe it. The one prudent thing to do is to go to confession and relate to the priest in confession what happened. And Jesus, who speaks to you through that priest, will tell you what to do. That is the prudent thing to do with those things. Okay? Because most of us are not theologians. Most of us don't know if what is being told in a dream is conforming to the public revelation, which is the only real revelation that will matter in the end, or not. So we can end up being heretical without even knowing it. Believing in something that is really not true, simply because we, do want to, we want to believe in the fact that God spoke to us in a dream. So be careful with that sort of stuff. And, by the way, in the case of Abimelech, the message wasn't that fun. It wasn't Abimelech, what a great, cool king you are. Right? It was, uh, do this and you're dead. Even St. Joseph, holy St. Joseph, glorious St. Joseph, an angel came to him in a dream, what did he say to him? It was very terse. The first message is, do not be afraid to take Mary. Right? And the second was, one was, was what? Get up, take the, the, the child and his mother, and go to Egypt, because there are people who seek to kill him. You know, I, I'm not looking forward to hear messages and dreams. Honestly. Very few messages and dreams are the sort of thing you think you really want to hear. Light and beautiful music and fountains and I don't know what else. It usually doesn't happen this way. That's what I just said. Yeah, what happened to him with his dream? He ended up in a pit, almost dead, and went to Egypt where he was a slave for two years. That's what happened to Joseph because of his dream. Had he been a little bit more careful, he had talked to his father first, instead of blurring it out to all his brothers... Right? Another example of somebody who should have managed the dream a little bit better. Exactly. It's a great example. We'll get to Joseph, actually. All right. Now, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Now, reflect on that for a second. Reflect on that. Abimelech was thinking, hey... I'm the dude. I'm the one who knew what to do. Right? Even though she was the newest prize in the harem, he didn't touch her. Woohoo! I'm a great guy. Look at the rebuke. No, 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 no. If I didn't prevent you, you'd be dead. Okay. And now that opens a huge topic for us. First, obvious question. Why God prevented him? 
Let me put this question to you. Why did he prevent him <clears throat> from touching Sarah? By the way, the answer isn't that difficult. At least the first answer. He's not aware of the covenant. He's not aware of the covenant. True. But there's something else. Yes. Yes. Very good. But right before that, there's something... Right before. He's not... He prevented him from touching her on account of Abraham, his servant. Okay? God loves those who love Him. God protects those who are faithful to Him. That should be a great message of consolation, even, even in the worst possible situation. God brings forth His protection. If we trust Him, if we believe that He cares for us today, right now, that's the first reason. The second, obviously, so there will be no doubt on the lineage. Isaac is not the son of Abimelech, but truly a miracle of God. The third, the third point that is important for us is God prevented Abimelech from touching her, but God didn't tell Abimelech, I prevented you from touching her, did he? There wasn't, you know, there wasn't a text an SMS that showed up on his cell phone saying, hey, Abimelech, I'm going to prevent you from doing this, okay? Abimelech appropriated the action unto himself, didn't he? Unaware that it was God who caused him to act virtuously. Now, take a minute and think about your day today. And just pick one thing you did that you think you did right. And try to remember that moment and ask yourself if in that moment you realized it wasn't you who was doing it. It was God. I'm not saying this to you to put you down. I'm just saying this to you to make you realize that when we ask this question, where is God? We're not aware of the fact that Every time we're doing a good deed, every time we're doing our duty, every time we control our voice, every time we're patient, every time we listen to someone, every time we go out of our way to do even one small bit of good, God is with us. He cares about us all the way down to those seconds. And it is us we don't know how to listen. Why don't we know how to listen? Because we don't practice listening. You see? So let, tell me, let me tell you a little bit about listening. Give you a couple of practical advice on listening. The three voices that speak in your conscience. Three. Most of us are absolutely and utterly, completely unaware of it. Your voice. The, the voice of demons. And the voice of your guardian angel. The voice of your guardian angel. You can't distinguish these voices by the sound they make. They'll all sound exactly like your voice. So how do you tell them apart? You tell them apart by their powers over you. If you are living in a state of grace, meaning you're going to confession regularly, you're examining your conscience, then the voice of the demons will be like someone throwing a, a rock in a lake. 
actually a big boulder, it causes a huge splash. That translates into disquiet, anxiety. Example, you're doing the dishes or you're typing a text and a thought comes to you, so-and-so is in a car accident. Being gullible, we think, oh, maybe it's a premonition. Maybe I know something that I don't know that I know. We start giving it importance when all that it is is the devil trying to disquiet you, lead you onto disquiet. Because we don't know how to listen, we don't filter those things out. We don't have a firewall. See, most of us are going out there on the spiritual internet without a firewall. You need to filter those, tho those thoughts, stop them, and consider them, and either accept them or just outright reject them. The voice of your guardian angel will command your attention, will, will have this arresting sense to it, and will prompt you on to good, but will not disturb your soul if you're in a state of, of grace. If you're in a state of sin, the voice of the devil and the voice of your angel will have the opposite effects. The voice of the demons will not disturb your soul. The voice of your guardian angel will disturb you. And you can't, you cannot, you and I cannot get to know those things if we are not practicing daily prayer. Especially if we're not spending some time in complete silence to learn to hear the voice of God. We, because we can. This is something that we're supposed to be able to do. And that's what you, you have a discerning mind to know the origins of things. Most of us are like Abimelech. We think we're doing it. When in fact, God does it in our lives. Here, he has this grace given to him for God to tell him, it is I who prevented you. Right? Now, that'll bruise his, his, uh, his ego. Right? But it's a lesson that God is giving him to know who is in command and who is he supposed to give glory to. And then God tells him, and therefore I did not let you touch her. And then he tells him that if he doesn't restore her to his, to his husband, her husband, know that you shall surely die, you and all that is yours. So it's not enough for him to recognize that he did something wrong. He has to atone for it. You understand? You see the, the foundation of confession right here? It's not enough to say, I'm sorry. You've got to do something about it. So confession starts with a state of mind. A general state of mind. That says that when I do something wrong, whether it's small or big, and even if it's just perceived wrong, if I don't hasten to take care of it, if I don't have the humility to say, I'm sorry, even if I'm not wrong, I'll start by saying, I'm sorry. Because none of us is just or innocent or holy. None of us is. So saying, I'm sorry, is always a good thing. And then to listen attentively to what the other person is saying and trying to address it. That would be the right attitude. 
generally speaking. And when we go to confession, the intent is to really wanting to change our ways. It's hard, obviously, but we have to have at least that intent and cling to it and continuously try to change our ways. So if you have a hot temper, somebody says, pass me the salt and you just blew up. You know, why don't you take the salt yourself? What do you think I am, a machine? It's right here in front of you. The distance from you to the salt is shorter than the distance from me to the salt. Why should I get up, give the salt? When you go, you know what I'm talking about. Of course, it doesn't happen to anybody here, right? If the intent is to change, then you have to come up with a plan. And maybe the plan is, I'm going to start by saying I'm sorry. Realistically, I'm not going to be able to change like this. I'm going to start by saying I'm sorry. Or some very small steps, God will not take you seriously and will not take me seriously. If you don't start by something that is practical, that is within your reach, then your confession is just for show. You're not being serious about change. Notice what God says. God says something very practical here. There's nothing mystical about it. You give her back to him. Now, that's all he said, but it's very practical. Now, Abimelech does something. He just doesn't give her back to him. He gives her back to him promptly, right away, immediately. There's no delay. There are no forms to fill. He immediately does it. First, he goes and he confesses what happened to him before all the elders. Everybody is, is also worried. And he immediately takes action. Right away, he takes action, he gives her back to him, and he gives um, um, Abraham gifts as means of reparation for the grief he caused the man. And he gives Sarah special gifts, a thousand uh, pounds of, of, um, right, of silver, which essentially, in, in back then, it would have, if you've taken a man's wage... In one lifetime, a man would not have been able to make a thousand pounds of silver. It's a very generous gift. And the significance of the gift is to, show, to tell everyone that I've averted my eyes, meaning I have not touched you. That's how he takes action, right away. That is the example for us. If your mom says, clean the table... And you decide you have better be surfing the net for the next three hours before you clean the table. And then, finally, reluctantly, you get up from your game and you decide, okay, I'm going to go clean the table. Right? And you just, you know, spit in your hand and then use your hand to wipe the table. I'm sure that will fall below the standard of your mother and mine and everybody else. That does not show a repentant heart. It shows somebody bothered by his mom who's bothering him. Not being attentive to the fact that when mom said, clean the table, God said, clean the table. And by not cleaning the table and wanting to do what we want to do, we basically told God, go fish. That's exactly what we've done. If, on the other hand, we're repentant, then we would probably start by cleaning the table with soap. Then we would use water to mop the soap. 
and then we would dry it really, really well, and then we would even bend and use our eyesight to make sure there's really nothing left on the table, and then we might squeak the table and smell it to make sure it's perfectly clean. Now, that shows repentance. Because we really mean to clean the table. Now, let's take it in something a little more serious. Let's take it in the area of love. We say love is a commitment. We commit ourselves to love even when it hurts. Especially when it hurts. We commit to love. So we don't hold grudge. We forgive. We hope. And we rely on God to take our little, small actions, which are usually imperfect, and turn them into perfection. That is marriage. That's what marriage does for those who live marriage according to God's will. Marriage will perfect you, will make you a saint, if you live according to the covenant. And the road will be just as bumpy as what you saw here. Marriage is not intent to be easy, unless you're already a saint when you got married. Some of you may be. For those of you who, like myself, are not, it's not intended to be a straight street. It's going to be bumpy and hard and demanding because it's transforming us into something we are not. Saints. Now, the interesting thing, Abimelech is the one now who goes to Abraham and instead of saying, you know what, I'm really sorry, I abducted your wife. And... I didn't know I was so scary that you had to pretend that she wasn't. I'm going to do something about it next time around. I don't know, I'll do something, right? You know, maybe bring Disney here or something, I don't know. But do something about it. No, instead, what does he do? He goes and starts yelling at him. How could you do this to me? How could you do What did Abraham do? What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you? That you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin. Never mind that I abducted your wife. Never mind that. Why did you do that to me? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What were you thinking of that you did this thing? Here's a really interesting thing from a psychological point of view. We tend to see in others those sins that are in us. Translation. The things that we complain the most about are the things that are in us. So you see when he said to him, what were you thinking of that you did this thing? He attributes to Abraham an intention, a hidden evil intention that Abraham did not have. Why? Because that's precisely how he lives his life as a king of a city. You know these people who live their lives with all the, um, worried about all these, um, what do you call them when... um, when there is this, this, uh, this thing that is happening behind our eyes and we, can't, we don't even see it, what do you call those things? Conspiracy. conspiracy. Worrying about all the conspiracies? It's because their own life is a conspiracy. People who see evil everywhere have issues. Real issues. People who critique everybody else, the first thing, open their mouth is, this, this, that, I did this, and then the other, and... There, was, there were two 
wise men in China walking together, and they came upon a dead, decomposing dog. One of them started complaining about this thing. Ah, how bad it smells, how could they leave it here, and on and on it went. The other one, the other one said, that dog had a good job. Even in a dead, decomposing dog, that wise man saw fit to say something good. None of us is so evil that there is no good in us. Nobody's like that. So therefore, in every situation, if you were to look, you would find something good to say. But if you were to do that, don't be a hypocrite. Don't say it as in, okay, I checked that box. Now that I did that, let me get down to business. I said the one good thing about that situation, and now I'm going to tell you the 322 bad things. It has to be genuine. It has to transform you. The world is the way it is because through it, right now, Jesus Christ is affecting your salvation. And mine. The world is the way it is because God will affect, will bring about your salvation, your entrance in heaven through the world the way it is right now. That is important for us to see. God is with us. He's walking with you right now. He knows. He knows that idiot who just cut you in the middle of the road and almost caused it. He knows that. But it may be not an idiot. It may be somebody who is just heard of bad news or someone who's having a really bad day. Who knows? Make sure you're not spitting in the hands of Jesus. Pardon? Yeah. Make sure you're not shunning away the gift that is coming to us in a very strange form. Now, how did Abraham respond? He just responded with the fact. I came here. I couldn't tell there was a, a, a rule of, of law. And I did, I did the only thing I could. Why did he do that? Because Abraham was put in a situation. And he had to make a choice. And he realized that for him to come out rashly and say, this is my wife and don't you touch her, would mean his death. Instead, he... Uh, you got to see it from his point of view, because most of us might be saying, well, what, did he, what did he just say? She's my wife. He realistically assessed the situation. He also recognizes God's promise. By you shall all nations live. He understands that, that promise. He knows God will be faithful to His promise. So therefore, He says, I will do the, the one thing that will avoid bloodshed, and I will leave the rest to God. Now, that takes real faith to be able to behave this way. Now, the last thing we're gonna, we, we are going to uh, look at, verse 17 and 18. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech. And also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. Right? 
Question number one. What would have happened had Abraham not prayed to God? Pardon? Well, maybe not dead, but they would, would they have been healed? No. No. Because God made what said specifically, He will pray for you and you will be healed. If He doesn't pray for them, they are not healed. Hold on to your question. Okay? Hold on to your question. We'll, get, we'll, we'll, we'll take questions in a couple of minutes, right? Let me ask you this other question. What would have happened if Mary had said, no, no salvation? No salvation. St. Augustine said that when the angel spoke, the whole of creation hung in the balance before Mary gave her answer. Now, you just have to take this and think about it. Think about what that means. But there's something else important here. What would have happened if Abimelech had prayed? Would they have been healed? No. Because if they would have been healed, God would not have lied to him, right? And I'd say, you ask him to pray for you, and then you will... Let me ask you this question. Are all prayers heard by God? No. No. Obviously not. If all prayers were heard by God, then Abimelech would have prayed and God would have heard him. Right? Absolutely. Granted. Now, yeah, God hears everything. That goes without saying. Yeah, obviously. Right? There isn't a thing that we say that God doesn't hear, so to speak. Right? Know about. He's omnipotent. But as in granted. So, an example. Let's take that as an example. couple are contracepting. The child is sick. The mother is praying for the child. Would God hear her prayer? No. She's living in an objective state of mortal sin. She has separated herself from God. The prayer will not be granted. Why? God will not be mocked. It would be a mockery of God for God to grant a prayer for somebody who's living in an objective mortal sin. Why? Because then God would be confirming that person in their state of mortal sin. God will not do that. Do you understand? doesn't matter. That's exactly the point. What if she doesn't know that she's doing something wrong? How will she find out if she's doing something wrong if God hears her prayer? She would not even try. You see? It matters if we're living in a state of grace or a state of sin. It matters a great deal. In fact, when someone falls in a state of mortal sin, all the graces... All the graces that he has received up to that point are in the balance. They're not his anymore. They're all taken away. But if he goes to confession, if he goes to confession, everything is granted back. That's the power of confession. Right? Another important thing that I want to show you. We'll get to your questions in a minute. I don't have many, but just hold on with me. What is this demonstrating for us? The power of what? Grace. And, yes, the power of grace, but particularly the power of intercession. intercession. When you have friends who are Protestants and ask, why do you pray to Our Lady? Take them here. Show them this passage. Not all prayers are granted. Abraham is a prophet. As God said in this text, He is a prophet, meaning he speaks the word of God. But he's also a friend of God. His prayer is granted. 
That's why. It's the cruelty. It's utter cruelty to cut somebody from the Blessed Virgin Mary. That's why it's so demonic. There is no more powerful intercession than hers. People are left alone on their own, fending for their own good. And who amongst us is good? That's why we call upon the intercession of the saints. Because we know they are friends of God. Their prayers are heard. Ours, maybe, maybe not. And more often than not, it's not. Now, am I trying to tell you, wow, that's a desperate situation here? Not at all. I'm trying to show you the riches that are yours. Avail yourself of confession. Live in a state of, of, um, of grace. And then call upon the intercession of the saints and commit your life to God and peace will be yours. That's what He wants to give us. But God will not be mocked. Neither will His covenant. So now, in conclusion of all of this, let's take one step back and look at it from a sort of a 10,000 feet uh, point of view. Alright, so we know Abraham went there and all this happened, right? Why? What's the outcome of all of this? What is shining like a jewel right now at the end of this chapter? The holiness of Abraham. So often, God will put His friends in really tight situation to make them shine like the sun. Now why? So that they can become beacons of salvation for others. So that others can see in them the life of God and be drawn to them and be willing to follow them. At the end of the day, this whole chapter is a chapter about the power of the mission. When you go into a place where maybe nobody believes in God, or you think nobody believes in God, or you think it's God forsaken, but through your own love of God, bearing through the difficulties and trials that come upon you, you bring to others the gift of salvation. Every one of you, has difficulties in your life. Nobody is without difficulties. Every one of you are carrying crosses. I talk to many people. I know about families who have members who are outside of the church, children who are not going to the church, who, um, um, parents being separated from children, brothers and sisters. All of us carry crosses. But don't look at them as this burden that has no meaning. Look at them instead as the spark that will make you shine like the sun if you were to let God do His will in your life. After all, that is the true meaning of love. To make the beloved shine more than you do. And God, in His love for us, told us, if you come after me and follow me, you will do these things and even greater things. Why? Because He loves us. He intends this to be a gift for every one of us. Provided we believe and we trust 
that through all the difficulties and the trials and the strange things that happen to us, God is with us. Through all of these things, He's right there. God bless you. All right, so we have time for questions. Yes. Ah, of co- well, of course. The question is, what if someone is living in a state of sin, but there is someone praying for them? Will those prayers be granted? They will be granted in as, in as much as they are bringing these people out of the state of sin. Right? That's the key. Right? So, it takes discernment. So, if this loved person knows what state they're living in, and they can pray for them, then those prayers will be granted according to God's will, but hope they will. We have to persevere. Yes. The church recognizes marriage, uh, whether civil or in other, um, or whether it's performed outside the Catholic Church, as a valid marriage. However, only the sacramental marriage provides those who, uh, the couple, with those sacramental graces that God has set aside. So the legality of the marriage is independent of the Catholic Church. It's a covenant between a man and a woman before God. The difference is when somebody is married in the Catholic Church, there are special graces that God will impart upon them for holiness that are not available in the same way for those married outside of the Church. So they're not considered living in a mortal sin. No, no, no. If they're married in, in, through a court, for example, yes. by the city clerk or yes. a Protestant, or if they were Jewish or Muslims or whatever. Yes, because marriage is not a covenant that the priest imparts upon okay. the couple. The priest is not. The priest does not marry people. Okay. The priest is standing as a witness. The judge is standing as a witness. The mufti is standing as a witness. The rabbi is standing as a witness. It is the man and the woman who are getting into that covenant. That's why those marriages are always are always recognized by the church. Okay. Yes. Yes. Very good question. The question is, if I have a family member that hardly goes to church, what can I do or say or do to help them go to church? First thing you do is offer sacrifice. If you're not going to offer sacrifice, you're not serious. Pick something. You love chocolate. You like to eat chocolate every day. Don't eat chocolate. As long as it takes until they come back. If you're serious, that's what you will do. You show God you're serious. You fast for them. No. It's nice. It's nice because it will remind you to pray. No, no. Lighting a candle is a good thing because it it will remind you to pray for them. But just lighting a candle on its own, not going to cut it. Whatever. Something that hurts. If you're a billionaire and you're giving out 50 bucks, no. Okay? Something that hurts, that's the first thing you do. The second thing, you don't do is argue with them. We're not into arguing with people. Right? We, I'm not going to sit and antagonize somebody over the faith. I'll present the facts, if they are willing to listen, up to the point they're willing to listen. But at the end of the day, that is not the most important thing. The most important thing is offer sacrifice and pray. Inter- ask the intercession of the Blessed Virgin Mary, the saints, ask others to pray for them, Ask religious orders to pray for them and continue. Let God work on them. All right? That's what you do. Okay. Yes. Yes. 
The difference between discernment and detachment is that discernment means that you look at a situation with biblical eyes. The eyes of God. You look at it and you would say, how does God see that? And, and, and for persons who are humble and prayerful and are really seeking God's will, the Holy Spirit inspires them to see in the situation what must be seen. Not everything, only the things that are required to be seen at that moment. Detachment, on the other hand, is this virtue that says that the only thing I want to love in my life is God. And detachment leads to the state of holy indifference. That says, whatever comes to me, I'll accept because it comes from the hands of God. Two different virtues, complementary. Alright? Yes? Oh, good question. If you have many things that you need help with, do you fast individually for each one of them? The first thing you do, if you have many things, you got to pray to know what you're supposed to pray for. And don't budge until you know. If God puts in your heart something, He may just want you to pray for one thing. Right? God is not going to ask you to pray for 222,466 things. It's not going to happen. You agree with me? Alright. Why? He knows what we can do. So we have to be very realistic. So pray for discernment. What am I supposed to pray for? Which one of these do you want me to pray for? And once you know that, then you decide to do something for it. You, uh, hold on. Fasting is one thing you can do. I just gave it as an example. It's a sacrifice of sorts. So for instance, let's say somebody has no problem staying without food for six hours straight. You can just handle it. Right? But whenever there is this baseball season, he's glued to the TV like crazy glue. Which of the, those two things do you think you should offer? The one that hurts. Get it? So look in your life. The one thing that hurts you most to do, that gnaws at you, is the one you go after. Because that is the way you're showing God, I understand your pain on the cross. I understand what you did for us. And I take that seriously. Okay? Any other question? All right. Very good. God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you, and God bless you.